0: The next thing I knew, I woke up in the middle of the night and I was pinned to the ground with, with strength that I'd never felt. Uh, it took me about two seconds to figure out what was going on and I had a bear on top of me. He was on top of my tent. It was raining like crazy. A storm had moved in and it was just pouring. So I have all this rain noise going on and then I have all this pressure on top of me. And, you know, imagine when a grizzly bear has his front paws and they kind of push down on the ground. Um or on a log or something like that. That's
1: what he was doing to me. Hello and welcome everyone. The Good Work podcast is an exploration of the men and women shaping agland investments. Agriculture is made up of some of the best people doing some of the best work in the world. Wendell Berry refers to this as humble, faithful, and skillful people and work that connects us to and honors the gifts we receive from land and life. So join us as we learn from the humble, skillful, and faithful leaders who are shaping the present and future of AgLand. This is good work.
2: All right. Jeff Simpson hails from Kansas and works in farming, real estate, brand development, marketing, photography, and videography. So I clearly have a penchant for linebackers who smile big, laugh easy, don't take themselves too seriously, and are a fun hang, because Jeff played linebacker at Oregon, and Trevor here played at Air Force. But I digress. Jeff has hunted all over the world, but is especially knowledgeable and experienced when it comes to Midwest whitetails and Rocky Mountain Elk. He's been a brand ambassador and product development partner and done groundbreaking work for big brands, Yeti, Takovas, Sitka, and Can-Am to name a few. He made one of my all-time favorite commercials and is married and a great dad to three kiddos. He's been mauled by a grizzly, had broken ribs and other injuries, and was shot in the leg by a buddy with an arrow. Most interesting man in the world title probably applies here. Jeff, thanks so much for being on good work with us.
3: Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, yeah, after that intro, you are absolutely the most interesting man in the world, <laughs> and uh, we're going to get into the stories, in particular, the mauled by a grizzly, um, but but before we get into that, um, we came across a quote from you, and we thought it was compelling, and it, it's this, "'Find a kid that w- that was raised with adventure, and I promise you, you will find an adult that has traditions.'" And we love that quote. Um, But so talk to us about the importance of adventure.
0: I think it it shapes you. I think um, especially in today's era with, you know, I have have three kids of my own and, you know, I see friends. I see others um, kind of throughout the whole school districts and, you know, teams that I coach and, and other things. And there's a distinct difference between the kids, you know, that are buried on Fortnite or always staring at a phone versus the kids that are out getting a little dirt under their, their nails and sweating and and, and doing things like that. And it's just personal preference on my end is the, you know, I, I kick my kids right on out of the house and, and expect them to uh, spend time outside and be connected and, and, uh, you know, make sure that part of their life is whole.
2: That's awesome, man. Yeah. How do you raise your kids kind of with that, that sense of advert adventure? And I know for you that, that's balanced with some you know with responsibility as well um, talk about that a little bit
0: well that, that's kind of a tricky one because it's you know a lot of that as an adult can can come down to what you what you do for a living um, that controls a large amount of your time as we all know as we as we get older but you know I think making time you know for instance one of the things I do with my with my boys, is we have what we call man training trips every year to where we hop in the truck and the camper and we just take off and go to the mountains or, you know, we figure somewhere out to go. And that's where I get to put on them like, Hey, you guys are cold. Cool. Make a fire. Um, it, it, it allow them to mess up um, and allow them to figure it out. And you obviously be there for uh, safety measures and, and making sure we're not burning down half the Western States. But, you know, you allow them to go out and do those things and, 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 and capture that sense of, problem-solving, right? You know, it's one yes. of my favorite things with, with, with in the world is, you know, how a lot of Navy SEALs reference work the problem. And if my kids were in here, they would tell you they, they've heard me say that a million times. If they've got a complaint, I always ask, them, have you worked the problem? Are you to the point where you need me or have you, or do you need to continue to work the problem? Um, and I think all of that leads into adventure. And I think the only way you can get in those situations is being outside and, and you know, really seeking out situations that that make you work the problem
2: absolutely man it that that reminds me last summer i was on a similar trip with my 10 year old boy and uh fortunately i was not rowing the drift boat down the rio grande when my buddy uh smashed it into a bridge and we sunk the boat and my son you know everybody was safe it was fine we were on a gravel bar but he goes dad are we stranded and i was like yeah buddy we're stranded but it's gonna be fine (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> it appears as such. <laughs> yeah,
2: the 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 failures make you stronger for sure.
0: Yeah, man, they make better stories, right? It's uh, no one no
3: one sits here and talks about all the things that went smooth, right? That's excellent. Where did this come from? I mean, your your um, were, were you instructed in this way growing up as as a young man? Uh, w- tell us a little bit about your childhood, where where, where you were born and um and and yeah. where you learned some of these principles that you're teaching your boys.
0: So born in Abilene, Kansas, which is a, a cow town, um, didn't spend a lot of time there. I was really young, don't really have any significant memory of it. But I mean, you know, we moved just a little bit east to right on the border of Kansas, Missouri, and Blue Springs, Missouri, driver three iron to Kansas, no big deal. But, you know, we grew up there and, you know, I, I had, my parents were busy all the time and I spent a lot of time with my my grandpa. My dad was always present. Mom was always present, but when they weren't around, I was with my grandpa and he was a, you know, it was cowboys that come, you know, my whole family, my, my dad and his brothers and sisters all grew up on a farm, uh, which turned into actually the, the the town Lake at a later date when I was older. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, I think it, I think it came from my grandpa probably mostly he always would, you know, he was from the Pacific Northwest up in Seattle. Um, he was a farmer uh, and he always took us from as young as I can remember, we would go to Wyoming antelope hunting. We would go to Colorado. We would, you know, we were always going somewhere to do something. So I would say most of that was instilled mostly through him. You know, his, his tolerance for whining or complaining on anything was, was very low. He loved with a stern hand, but man, we loved it back. And we had tons of respect and, uh, you know, wouldn't do it any different.
3: Your grandfather, obviously, an incredible um, example in your life, and uh, teaching you at an early age to to work the problem. So that leads you going to to Oregon, and um, tell us a little bit about your your experience there and and um, what you learned through uh, college and and playing football at Oregon.
0: Yeah, man. I mean, football was a chapter, right? That was a pretty significant chapter in my life. I mean, high school was always a big deal. We won our first state championship for Blue Springs, my junior year. Um, we had a lot of kids on that team that went on to play college football. I was lucky enough to to be one of them. And, you know, my time at, at Oregon was, was great. You know, I loved it, made some great friendships that are still in place to this day. It's every kid's dream to just jump out of a stadium tunnel and have you know, 60, 70, 80,000 people screaming their heads off, right? It's a, it's a great experience. And, you know, that's a great league and a, and a great tradition at, at Oregon. But as much as I loved that and as much as that was a big part of my identity for a long time, I was also really happy to close that chapter when it ended and, and, and kind of move on to the next.
2: Yeah. Jeff, I was telling Morgan and Trevor uh, your, your giftedness when it comes to kind of capturing the soul of the outdoors and just the passion behind things. I told him about that the Yeti commercial, which I think is one of the best I've ever seen where you're, you're filming multiple scenes, all spliced together throughout the seasons. But so yeah, talk about from
0: the, the back of the track one.
2: Yeah. 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 Talk that about was, I, like from I, Oregon I to that. how you, how you go from, you know, cracking skulls on the gridiron to artfully filming the outdoors and, and doing work for these big brands.
0: You know, that wasn't really something that just happened. I mean, I I won my first photography contest when I was eight years old. (laughs) I think technically my mother won because I was too young to enter. Um, So she entered one of my photos and and ended up winning. But I don't know what it was. But from day one, the first time I touched the camera, I was manipulating light. I was looking at composition. And it was something that came very natural to me. I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Um, And I still do it to this day and I'll do it till I die. But I think, you know, once I got done playing ball, you know, I started working, you know, and I I ended up, you know, went down the the route of technology because back then that was the tail end of the dot com. So everything was a tech job. But I got drawn into the marketing side of it really quickly and, you know, and kind of figured out that there was a space there that interested me. And then it became because as it matured, it became like not only is it interesting, to do the marketing side, but if these people were contracting to go through these photos or get us this content or, you know, do these things it Was like, I kind of like what they're doing better than what I'm doing. <laughs> so I started applying looking at that. And then on the flip side of that, I was like, man, I also really like being outside. So that all of that kind of led down that journey, you know, your, your liabilities and your, your responsibilities are really low when you're single, um, and young. So, you know, I made, made that jump during that time. And, um, I don't think I could have done it otherwise, but, it, you know, the time was right. And, you know, I think it it worked out pretty well.
1: Yeah. Jeff, this is Morgan. Your, um, your photos are really stunning. It's, it's, uh, it was fun for me to flip through your, your Instagram. No, thank you. Now you have transitioned into investing in owning land and yeah. I would love to know just, just more about the recent transition and, um, some of the high points of your history and what brought you here. And I would also love to know kind of how your, your art in photography ties into, you know, the land and investing side and how you kind of tie those two skills. It's kind of a left brain, right brain um combination, you know?
3: Yeah,
0: I think, you know, I'm not sure that it's too far left brain, right brain, because, you know, I feel like anytime I'm on a piece of property and this goes back to when I was young and hunting, I'd be sitting in a tree and I'd, there was this one ridge out in uh, Flint Hills, Kansas, that I hunted for years, and it was just as picturesque as it can get. And I remember sitting in trees and looking around, going, "Man, can you imagine owning these trees, owning this ridge, owning that field? These deer running around, the turkey running around, you know, coveys of quail coming through. I mean, it was just, it was utopia, right? Um, so I've always been really drawn to the idea of man being the landowner of this and the respect that you should get the land. It was, it was, it wasn't from a financial standpoint as much as it was just with like this setting, this, this, you know, nature setting, this utopia could be mine if I work hard enough, you know, and that, that was always kind of the drive behind that. You know, I think looking at it like that, I've always taken a lot of landscape photos. I've always taken a lot of wildlife photos and all of that really leads into when you're trying to help other people accomplish their goal of land ownership, you know, you can help them you know, look through the weeds and, and, and see the beauty of each each property. Because every property has its own story, whether it's water, trees, native grass, wildlife, all of that. You know, it all exists there. You just have to uncover it and see it. And I think the the photography side and you know, kind of that background of mine helps me see that a little easier than others. And I certainly love the the aspect of regenerating that that habitat on farms that or ranches that have been kind of neglected. So, you know, Mac and I have a perfect story of that uh, out in Barber County right now, a, a ranch that had far too many cows on it for far too many years. And, you know, we're doing a regenerative process on there to help the native grass restore the waterlands, the the cover that, you know, and everything's going really well. But it takes time and it takes effort and also takes, uh, you know, some knowledge of what, what's going to work and what's not.
2: Yeah, it's it's been amazing to, to see that on, on this specific property you just had trash everywhere and and completely overgrazed and and jeff and his team have done an unbelievable job of of just like you said regenerating the the landscape you know you've it's amazing what what rain will do but also adding adding water for for wildlife it just has totally transformed the place and the the quality and health of the animals is is stunning so that's been really fun to to watch on on what was a pretty tough bad shape kind of burn up beat up piece of ground
0: yeah I'm not, I'm not sure i've ever walked that many acres without seeing one single deer print in my life and that that place was it you know when we first the first time i walked it did not find a single deer print
2: yeah now you got we we got elk we got quail we got whitetails i mean it's amazing
0: yeah, it's, up now. It's, it's great so, we, and we've been really lucky this year we've gotten a lot of a lot of rain out in western kansas I mean, we're coming out of a drought that was really bad last year, but things are looking good out there.
1: Is that is that kind of your niche? Would you say, Jeff, finding finding something like that that needs some love and regeneration and and some yeah. some real like investment and kind of like you said, being able to see it from a different perspective is that is that kind of your niche in the in the land investing world?
0: Yeah, you know, I think I like finding those. Those properties that have the right undulation and have the white water, right water features, and the right potential for cover or food, and you know, in trying to help develop that and get it to a certain point, and not every property is going to have it. You know, some of them just will never have cover. Some of them will never have water. You know, water is really hard to, to replace or create. So, you know, you, you want to look, and you also want to look at, you know, zoom out and quit looking at just that singular property. You want to see what are the major drainage ways that are, you know, three miles radius and, you know, how do they flow into the property? And you take guesses of how these deer and, and, and other animals migrate through the properties to decide whether it's one you want to take on or not.
3: That's awesome. I love your comment. Every property has its own story. And you obviously use your giftings to help um, really discover what that story is. And uh, you're you're from Kansas. Kansas is, is home for you. Talk about the, what you love so much um, about Kansas and Kansas land in particular, and what would you say you think is overlooked or undervalued from an investment perspective, the, essentially the story that you can help see and discover that is, is, might, might be overlooked right now?
0: I don't think Kansas is a great secret by any means right now. I mean, we're pretty well known for our deer herd. <laughs> we're highly, you know, touted for that. But we also, a lot of people don't know, our, our quail populations doing doing pretty well right now. And, you know, we'd love to see it continue to grow and get to, to, when I was a kid, you know, going back to when I was a kid, quail hunting was my first love. Hmm. And that was what we did. And quail were everywhere. And then for a number of years that, that really, you know, dissipated and we, you know, you got to a lot of years, none of us even quail hunted because we felt bad shooting one because there just weren't enough. Um, and we're getting back to that point now to where it, you know, it feels comfortable going quail hunting and, you know, we're making sure we're putting in, you know, milo, sunflower, other, other crops that support, um, support the birds. And we're trying to limit our spraying, right? We want to make sure that we're not spraying chemicals. In areas areas that you know these quails should be hatching and everything else, so we you know we're doing everything we can to take care of them, and the efforts seem to be paying off because we're seeing a lot of birds. But back to your question, the uh, the thing about Kansas is you know different parts are known for different things. I think everybody thinks of ad grounds when they think of Kansas, and there is significant ag ground here, but there's also in you know certain areas it's a lot more native grassland and you know cow grazing and in those sorts of setups. Um, there's a lot of good opportunities out there to find properties that are pretty affordable price per acre, um, that are solid investments. And you know, right now it seems like the interest is only going up. I mean, I, I know interest rates are up, but the interest in rural real estate and parking some cash out of the market into ranches uh, seems to be increasing daily right now. I have countless conversations every week right now, and it's 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 pretty interesting to see. And I don't know if that's because of interest rates or a distrust of the markets or political reasons. I can't really predict what's causing it. Um, but there certainly is quite a bit of interest.
2: Yeah, you've you've helped some pretty sizable investors ramp up some big land holdings. What, I mean what, what do you think is has spiked that interest in in the state and in the asset class?
0: Well I think the the cost of entry is fairly low compared to some other states. I know you know if you look in Illinois, the price per acre has just gotten right. insane. You know, Southern Iowa, you know, it's another great deer hunting state, but the you know their laws around landowner tags and as well as price per acre is, is far above ours. So I you know I think we offer in the nation. I would say we probably offer the friendliest out of state landowner situation for tags with the highest quality hunting so you're looking at a, an investment that is also recreational for you. Um so that makes it a pretty good fit for a larger number of people.
2: Yeah, that's that's what I love about. It. I mean, the wildlife mix you can have of obviously w- very well-known high-quality large whitetails, you get elk and even mule deer in some places, but then like you like you've touched on tons of quail and and wild turkey and even pheasants and all that's on right. top of income that can be generated either through grazing and, and agriculture leases or operating yourself. And yeah, man, I'm with you.
1: In, in Kansas is, is your experience that most of the big um, farms and ranches are still owned by, by families and by individual farmers and, and ranchers, or are there, is there different types of money coming in buying, buying land or what's the trend looking like?
0: Yeah. I mean, Right now, there still is a, a quite a bit of it is family-owned and you know legacy ranches and farms um, throughout the state. But there's there's certainly a you know we have our we we certainly have our share of out-of-state landowners. You know, my personal goal is just to make sure that no foreign entity is ever buying our dirt. That's just a personal mission of mine. I want to make sure if anything's for sale, we're making sure it's going to people with like interests.
2: Yep, share the same kind of conservation philosophies and and regenerative ag philosophies yep. as well. You you gotta you gotta give us the the grizzly bear story, you know.
3: Yeah, I mean we we would be doing our listeners a disservice if we we. I've been I've been chomping at the bit, re- ready to to hear the story. So yeah, I, um, mauled by a grizzly. I mean y- you can't say that in an intro and not get the, no, the story. No.
0: Yeah, you know, and you know, mauling is a word that you can define differently. Right. <laughs> Te- technically, if it touches you, you're, you're, you're listed as a mauling.
2: So, I got, I got um, mauled by a squirrel the other day.
0: <laughs> hey, you got to be careful about this. <laughs> um, so long story short, I was up in British Columbia moose hunting. I don't know. I think it was only night. the third night of 23, I decided that I was going to be camper extraordinaire, and I found this really nice flat spot by the river to put my tent and uh, pitched up there thought i was in great shape i actually took a picture of it that night uh, with the stars above and everything else uh, and, and went to bed the next thing i knew i woke up in the middle of the night and i was pinned to the ground with with strength that i'd never felt uh, it took me about two seconds to figure out what was going on and i had a bear on top of me he was on top of my tent it was raining like crazy a storm had moved in and it was just pouring so I have all this rain noise going on, and then I have all this pressure on top of me. And you know, imagine when a grizzly bear has his front paws and they kind of push down on the ground um, or on a log or something like that. That's what he was doing to me. And
1: no, I don't. I don't want to imagine that, Jeff.
0: <laughs> well, you can imagine it in, uh, in a way that it's not you. <laughs> That's right. You know, his, his left paw was on my kind of on my pelvis and ribs on my left side. And his right one was on my right knee. He was just kind of beating me up a little bit. And I I don't know what it was, but I I, you know, I very specifically remember I got my right leg free and I heel kicked him a couple times through the tent and everything else. But I mean, I landed a couple good heel kicks, which if that was my last thing, then I guess that would have been something to be proud of. (laughs) You know, I did that and I said, get out of here, really stern. And and I wasn't scared at all. Like I knew I had a bear on me and I wasn't, there was no fear. There was no, it was pretty, it was a pretty calm situation given the situation, you know, given the circumstance. And, uh, you know, I, he'll take a couple of times and he gets off And the, in this next part, I honestly think has a lot to do with why we're able to sit here and talk today is it was raining really hard and my tent popped up, you know, it just completely popped back up when that bear got off me. And whether that threw water all over his face or kind of reset the bar or, or whatever, but the bear kind of chilled out a little bit for a second. I remember as soon as that tent popped back up, I was pretty, I mean, I was really aware of what was going on at that point. And my bow was outside my tent under the vestibule. My knife was next to me and I had a little tiny flashlight. And uh, I quietly grabbed my knife and my flashlight and... Was just listening, and next thing I know, I hear the I hear the bear breathing. You know, they're very distinct when they're that close and they're breathing. And um, he starts poking his nose against the edge of the tent, <laughs> and I'm kind of leaning away, leaning away as he keeps doing it. And I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, "Man, if he breaks this fabric of this tent, I got to cram this knife in his nose and scramble like heck." And that was my plan, and that that was my only plan. I didn't like my plan, but that was all I had. <laughs> <Yeah>.
3: <laughs> you, you were problem solving.
0: Yeah, I was, I was working the problem. You were working and, the problem.
1: Uh, Pro-con list. Yeah,
0: it, you know, and he he walked around me a few times and I kept hearing him breathe. And then the worst thing in the world happened, it got really quiet. The rain slowed down and I couldn't hear the bear. Um, He didn't come in. He did nothing. And then I'm sitting there thinking like, well, man, I almost liked it better when I knew where he was at. <laughs> And I remember telling myself, I was like, I got to get out of this tent. And I really didn't want to. I had this false security that this three millimeter fabric was, you know, protecting me against despair. But finally, I decided, I was like, all right, I'm going to take my flashlight and I'm going to wave it around. Maybe this tent will look like a UFO and it'll run off. Um So I, I swung the light around a little bit, made some noise, and, and then I got out of the tent. Um, and as soon as I got out of the tent, you know, it was like, magnum pi with a flashlight looking everywhere very <laughs> feverishly prepared thinking i'm gonna get earholed at any second but everything was good um, i picked up his tracks walking away from me so i went the other way and uh, you know I, I scurried over to the the guy that was in camp with me it was actually the uh, president of the outfitter's association of dc so i, I got over to his tent and got in there i said michael i need the gun And he's like sure it's right here and then like two steps later he's like why do you need the gun So then, you know, the rest of it kind of went from there. But at that juncture, I didn't even know I was beat up. You know, I I was just kind of getting along trying to figure out what I needed to do to get everything straight. And then uh, nothing else really happened that night other than the fact we started figuring out that my, you know, ribs and side and knee and everything else was pretty pretty beat up. But um, all in all, I was pretty lucky to to get out of that one.
3: Yeah, man. (laughs) Well, I I just... (laughs) want to go ahead and on record and say it, for all the interviews we do on the good work podcast, I, I don't know if we'll have a, a cooler story. <laughs> I'm not going to have a, a topper on that one. That's well, incredible. so
2: th- There is a closure
0: to it. You know, the next night, you know, I wasn't sleeping well cause I was just kind of nursing all the injuries and everything. But the next night, um, the bear came back and got in our coolers, took some food. Um, it was pretty polite. Didn't take all of it. It's <laughs> uh, nice of him. And then the, The following night, we stayed up and, uh, Michael and I, we put it, you know, some clients in. So all the clients got their tents and we stayed up by the the campfire. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, (laughs) there's longer version of the story, but short, short version is we ended up finding the bear and we, we, you know, at that point, we didn't know if it was grizzly or black bear because there's a lot of each in that region. You know, you got two pretty experienced guys between Michael and myself and we're sitting by the fire and I hear something and I, I kind of, lean up and I shoot flashlight and I catch the rear end of the bear going into the, into the brush. I go, Michael, he's right here. And it was a really dark bear. I go, man, I think that's a giant black bear, which was an instant relief to to both of us. And uh, in, so in all of our infinite wisdom, we go, well, turn the lights off. Let's we'll see if it comes back out. <laughs> and uh, so we turn the lights off. We kind of wobble towards him. I'm wobbling. He's walking. And uh, sure enough, the bear comes out, but he's down a little ways. And Michael actually shot at his feet. And it ran off. So at this point, you got the president of the BC, you know, outfit association and myself both looking and we're like, that's the biggest black bear I've ever seen. And we're both convinced that it's black bear. I don't know if the suggestion of that made us both believe that or if we just wanted to believe it. But we, you know, we thought we were dealing with a black bear, which is a lot more innocent than a grizzly. It wasn't 30 minutes later. We're still staying up. I walk over to check the generator and hear something and I look up and right in front of me there's old pumpkin head staring at me and uh <laughs> you know we get the light on and we boom boom we shoot him right between the eyes and down he goes and turns out it was a really really dark giant grizzly so that's kind of how the story ended for him which i felt bad it was pretty you know like i said it was a pretty polite and very didn't take all of our food and he didn't kill me so <laughs> uh, but the, do you, you think know, the, the,
2: sorry the encounters,
0: were getting, the, the encounters were getting to be a little too frequent
2: right Right? Do you think you like? Did he know what what he was doing when he was on top of you, or do you think he was just like investigating? Was he was he beating you up good enough where you were like, he knows what he's doing?
0: Well, so you have to do interviews when it, you know it's an illegal kill and everything else. You have to do interviews with the the biologists and everything else the mm-hmm. D.C. and they were just you know they were they were cracking up at the thing. I'm like it's really not that funny, but they thought it was. <laughs> you know the way he explained it to me was you know grizzly bears. They pounce on logs and swap at him. Something wiggles and then they bite. And he goes for for the life of me, I don't know why when you wiggled and kicked him, he didn't bite you. Mm. He goes, he should have bit you. Yeah, just out of pure behavior. Um So I, you know, I had some, uh, I had some. Maybe his grandpa helping me out from up above, but it, uh, you know, I had some luck on my end on that deal. But you know, I, I think he knew I was in there because all my guidelines were popped. I um, mean, I had, he circled my tent. I mean, they're, they're very aware. They can smell anything. He he could hear me breathing. I think if I would have had any food in my tent at all, I probably would have been in a lot of trouble. Mm. Um, I was very, very clean, um, had no food, no nothing
2: in there. Man, that's amazing.
3: Yeah. Yo, you definitely worked that problem, my friend. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, there, I mean, we, we already, uh, through this interview, I mean, we, we've had, um, ways to describe, describe you and um, but we would love to hear what three words your really close friends your your wife parents your your grandfather would consistently use to describe you
0: that's a tough one there um, loyal would definitely be one um,
3: mm.
0: I don't have a lot of friends but the ones I have are near and dear and outside of that I don't think anyone would ever call me lazy uh, <laughs> and not non lazy. <laughs> so yeah i mean every, everything i do has you know you can trace it back to doing it for
2: for the kids in the white I'd, I'd add thoughtful just as i've gotten to know you uh or gotten to know you over the last year jeff i think your your approach to everything you do you're in, in intensely thoughtful about yeah i think that's probably the backcountry hunter in me yeah um you learn to plan pretty thoroughly
3: when you do a lot of backcountry stuff that's excellent well, there's a set of questions, uh, that we ask all our guests, uh, we we'll call them good questions and, uh, we, we, uh, you know, we change them up, uh, just to, to make sure that they fit, um, our, our guest. And so the first question, and I, I don't think it's the, uh, the bear story. So uh, that would be our, our, my guess is what's your favorite adventure story?
0: Oh man. Oh, that's a tough one too. Um, it's actually probably the first one that came to mind would be there was a three year period that I was chasing a deer in Kansas that I ended up never getting. Um, I had four encounters over three years with him, and I I had convinced myself, and I still to this day believe that you know he would have been really really close to a typical world re- world yeah, world record. I had a great journey with that deer man seeing him. I saw him chasing does. He whizzed by me, mocked ten a couple times at twenty yards, and I just couldn't get the <laughs> shot. But I really enjoyed being in the woods with that deer and, and watching him. And um, I never figured out how he died. Never found his sheds. You know, obviously, I would have heard about it if someone would have killed him. You know, he is a mystery, and uh, I think mysteries like that are what keep you coming back.
1: He just hmm. he just died of old deer age out in the. Yeah, line. I think
0: he, you know, and he, he very easily could have downgraded to the extent of being eight or nine years old or 10 years old to the point where I just didn't recognize him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't, um, I don't know much about hunting, so, um, I, I, I haven't chimed in much on these co- topics, but.
2: It's your first grizzly mauling conversation. Is, this is my first
1: grizzly <laughs> mauling. Okay. So my, mine's more general. Jeff, what is your perfect Saturday?
0: Perfect Saturday. I guess that depends on time of year. You know, I, I enjoy watching my uh, my Oregon Ducks play football on Saturday, but I also love when uh, the kids get to go out to the ranch with me and, you know, put some time in the tractor or, or in the tree stand or, you know, taking pictures or farming or, you know, any of those things. You know, typically every spring we burn. Um, and, man, we, we have a good time as a family out there burning native grass and, you know, Kids love it. It's a uh, that's a pretty lifelong memory for them. You know, not a lot of kids get to see 300 acres on fire at one time and, and, and control it. So it's uh, you know, those are anything outside. I'm I'm pretty happy with.
1: And you mentioned earlier uh, earlier that you farm Milo and sunflowers on on your land, or maybe that's the ranch that you were talking about with Mac. What else What else do you guys farm on your on your acres?
0: It kind of depends. Um, so if we're in western Kansas, it, it, it only tolerates certain things. And then over here on the eastern side of the state where I live, um, you know, it's your traditional soybeans, corn, alfalfa, those sorts of things. So, it, you know, and it's a rotation of each. And depending on what the ag fields around me are going to do, I, I try to rotate out of something different so they have a variety. Yeah, it's awesome.
2: All right, Jeff, one thing we ask everybody, what's your definition of good work?
0: Man, good work. I think it's work with intent, you know, intent to do, to improve something. You know, I think all this work we do on these ranches and each piece of ground is to leave it in a better state than we found it. Um, So I would consider that good work.
2: Love it. That's awesome.
1: That's what Girl Scouts always told me. Leave everything better than you found it. Man,
2: thanks so much for doing this, Jeff. This has been awesome and, and, and fun as always getting to talk to you. We all enjoyed it and very much appreciate your time, man.
0: Yeah, man. Thanks for having
3: me. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, thanks.
1: This episode is brought to you by McFarland Capital Partners. At McFarland Capital Partners, our mission is to cultivate people and property with passion and purpose. McFarland Capital Partners has a 30 plus year history as a private equity sponsor in real estate. Our current investment focus is on ag land investments in farmland, vineyards, and ranch land. We love ag land as an asset class, and are blessed to partner with some of the most talented operators in the sector. We're actively investing in Agland Investments between 5 and $40 million, and I don't mind saying we have an excellent team executing and stewarding at the highest level. You can see and learn all about this and more at McFarlane.com. Trevor Hightower, Mac McFarlane, and Morgan Stallings are partners and principals at McFarlane Capital Partners. All opinions expressed by Trevor, Mac, Morgan, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of McFarlane Capital Partners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.